book of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'll be reading the entirety of that chapter. Moses continues to give a history and tie to that history exhortation. Uh, Recently, I read an article written by a guy who fancies himself a professional speaker, uh, and he was giving some advice to pastors. Uh, Some of that advice was never preach a sermon over 35 minutes and take history out of your sermons. No wonder we're stupid people, because we don't even know where we came from. Like, what, who is this guy? And I mean, you look at his credentials, and he was not, I was not, not, it's not I wasn't impressed by his credentials. It's just that he's speaking, he's writing as a professional speaker. Uh, and then you look at the sermons of Moses, and half his history, half of it is exhortation. So you tell me, should I listen to the spirit or the professional? Who's the pro? Well, uh, history is helpful because history places us within the covenant context of who we are as a people. Um, History teaches us that everywhere you go, in all the world, we're very much the same. We struggle with the same things. We may speak different languages. Uh, Some of those people over there may eat weird foods, right? I mean, I remember eating sheep brains, strange food, would never do it. Didn't make me smarter. I I don't know why. I figured maybe if you are what you eat, if you eat brains... Uh, maybe you get smarter, but all it does is raise your cholesterol. So, um, history is essential because history ties us to the work of Christ in the church. And without that, we are drifting and we do not understand the context for the, the, the sending of the Messiah and why it is Christ had to come anyway. What's the point of it all if we do not understand history? Deuteronomy chapter 10, the first part is history. Verses 1 through 11, and then verses 12 through 22 are the application of that history as we have seen time and again in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke And you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he, that is the Lord, wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Baroth B'nai Jachon to Maserah. There Aaron died and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gagada. Excuse me, took me a second. And from Gagada to Jot. Bat Ha, a land with brooks of water. At the time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. There Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord God said to him. I myself stayed. On the mountain, as at the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. 
the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your forefathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him and praise he is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray even now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord our God, even now we ask that you might circumcise our hearts that you would remove our hearts of stone and place within us hearts of flesh, that you might write upon us expressions of love, the law itself. O Lord, teach us to love what you love and to hate what you hate and to search after you, to seek your glory and the good of your people all the days of our life, for you have done great things for us. And so we say that we are your people. And we long to glorify you even in the sanctuary, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It is after Moses confronts Israel, here's some history, (laughs) that he then begins to talk about what happened after the fact that he threw down the tablets of stone. The tablets were the sign, the seal of God's covenant with his people. Uh, They were not four commands on one side, six on the other, but they were exact copies of the same law. One copy for God, one copy for man. And those copies were contracts. And it was a contract in which God said, I am wedding myself to you as your great king and redeemer, and you are being wed to me as my great people, my bride, the one whom I love. Now when Moses came down from the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights of dwelling with the Lord and receiving the law, and he saw that they had made a calf out of gold and were worshiping it, he threw down the tablets, he broke them, He made the Israelites drink the gold dust that he mixed with water soon after he destroyed the calf, showing them the vanity of idolatry. And it was after that time that we know that the law was given to Israel again. 
This is not unlike God's giving of the law to us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday when we recite either some portion of Scripture or even this morning the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were presented to you this morning in spite of the fact that you broke all or one of them this week. And to break one of them is to break all of them. You have violated God's holy law. Paul speaks of this tendency even in his own heart. I can't do what God wants me to do. That doesn't mean we're victims. In fact, more often we are the victimizers. We are the instruments of our own destruction. We are rebellious. We are sinful from birth. And even those who belong to the visible church are guilty or are capable of the same kind of high-handed sins against God that even the pagans are. Here, Israel is no different than the people from whom God delivered them. But despite this, we read, verse 10, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. Why is that? Is it because he sensed greatness in the people? They had just not yet reached it? No, In fact, Israel would commit even graver sins than the one they committed on the mountain. It's because God is committed to the work of a mediator to bring about salvation for his beloved chosen people. That is the theme of the covenant of grace. Not by works done in in human flesh, but by God's grace alone. By grace, through faith, you are saved. And this, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God so that no one can boast. God is, in the book of Deuteronomy, through his servant Moses, delivering sermons to Israel to show them that the only reason they have anything good is because God has time and time again overlooked and forgiven their sins. Paul would explain how that was possible in the book of Romans. He said that God looked over or he overlooked the sins of Israel And that those sins of his beloved people, even in the Old Testament, were laid upon Christ. By his stripes we are healed. Nonetheless, despite the work of a mediator that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 9, that is because of Moses' mediation between an angry God and a sinful people, God shows mercy. God himself is committed to the covenant. And he will deliver the law again. And that is what we find this evening. We find the durability of an unbreakable covenant that God has entered into through the Messiah and his people. Two points that I want to make. The first, new tablets, and the second, new hearts. New tablets and new hearts. Now let's look at Israel's, what I've listed in my notes as, Israel's blowing moment. They blew it. This is when they should be at the fever pitch This is climax level delight and enjoyment. Here is Israel. They have been freed from Egypt. They have been led through the Red Sea. They have been led through the land of bitter waters and God gave them sweet, fresh water. God has given them food. Here they are at the mountain and they are trembling with fear at the foot of the mountain and they are anticipating what God will do in Exodus chapter 19. And then in Exodus chapter 20, God gives them the law. But when Moses comes down from the mountain, because they cannot wait upon God, they cannot wait upon their leader, Moses, 
they revert back to the idolatry of Egypt. Oftentimes, this is where our idols and the temptation to those idols comes. This was the temptation of Abraham, or when he was Abram. God said to Abram, I will make you the father of many nations. It took many years for that promise to be fulfilled, and so Abram thought, well, maybe I should take matters into my own hand. Maybe I should sleep with my wife's servant girl. And there should have been a warning light going off in his mind, but in fact, it was his own wife who said, hey, maybe you should do it this way. I mean, can you imagine? This is how they did surrogacy back in the day. It was quite unholy. And that son that was born to Abraham, God made it very clear, that's not the son. Jacob himself sought to overthrow the plan of God, and he stole. He thought through thievery he might get the blessing that he knew was coming to him. Moses killed an Egyptian before God called him to be the deliverer of Israel. Time and time again, we see that man seeks to do things his own way out of impatience or lack of trust. In light of God's revealed will. And all of those moments always come in the face of very clear revelation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they did so in the presence of or in contrast or contrary action to the very direct command of God, do not eat of that tree. There was nothing sinful about the tree. There was sinful in the disobedience of eating that fruit. That fruit that granted knowledge. God would one day allow them to eat of that tree, but not until they grew in righteousness. Israel's blowing at moment was very clear. They sinned against the majesty of God, his holiness, his glory, and they sinned against his mercy. He saved their lives. They owe him everything, and yet they worshiped another God. And Israel would struggle mightily to avoid the sins of their captors, the sin of idolatry, the Egyptians. Because ultimately, it was not just about leaving Egypt, the physical place. It was about leaving Egypt here. You can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelite. You can take the Christian out of the world, but it is hard to remove the temptations of the world and the the tendency to give in to those things out of the heart of a Christian. They needed to see sin mortified. They needed to grow in grace. And that inward conflict, that inward struggle for holiness is ultimately what this is all about. And despite their sin, God responds in mercy. Moses says, at that time, the Lord said to me, verse one, cut for yourself two tablets. It's the second giving of the law. This is making up after a terrible conflict. And God is leading the way. We call this monergism. Not synergism between a man who thinks himself righteous and God. Man never causes God to act in mercy. God always leads the way in mercy. And we follow him and what he is doing is he leads us by revelation and his Holy Spirit. Despite Israel's sin, God showed kindness. God showed kindness because his covenant would hold fast. And God shows kindness because of the work of the mediator, Moses, which is a type and sign of Christ himself. 
God was kind to Israel, not because they deserved it, but because God made a promise to Israel that he would be kind, that he would not break covenant with them, that he would not judge them from off the face of the earth. And in this re-giving of the law is a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. And with the giving of the law, the re-communication of promises and pledges and warnings. This covenant is therefore marked by God's own willingness to overlook the sins of his people through the work of Christ. God doesn't say, oh, no biggie. It's just more sin that gets piled upon the back of our Redeemer. It's more stripes. It's more suffering. Now, God is angry, and God's angry in judgment is pictured in Moses' anger. Moses rightly shows Israel what they have done to the covenant. They have broken covenant with God. They have disobeyed his holy law, and because of this, the covenant has been violated, and they deserve that the tablets be broken. They deserve that they never be reforged or recarved or rewritten. But God is not like Israel. And it goes back to that promise that God made to Abraham many, many centuries before when he made covenant with Abraham. And on the night of God's covenant with Abraham, he caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep where Abraham saw the Lord descend and in the picture of a, the form of a golden burning censure, which is like a metal bowl that holds incense, God passed between the pieces of broken animal that symbolized what would happen to those who violated the covenant. Abraham was not required to walk through those pieces with God which was the typical format of establishing a covenant between a greater and a lesser power. God is saying, I will handle whatever covenant violations come our way. He is saying, what happens when you break the covenant will be laid upon me. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah says. God is angry, but God is forgiving God hates our sin, but God is gracious. We see here in verses 1 through 11 the durability of the covenant of grace because it is, it is tied to God's extreme long-suffering patience and the work of Christ upon the cross. It is not our hanging on to God, but it is his hanging on to us. God knows us, doesn't he? He's not surprised by our sin. He knows that our sin comes from a place of infidelity and idolatry. He knows when you will sin in the future. He knows when you will sin tomorrow and what kind of sin that will be. And he knows the sinfulness of that sin, even though at times you try to hide and run from the sinfulness of that sin and you don't tell anybody. And sometimes you don't even tell him. But he knows it. He sees it all. This is what terrified Martin Luther. He was terrified at the idea that God knows every hidden thought and none of those hidden thoughts are very good. And so Luther would stay in his chambers hour after hour berating himself, 
yelling at himself, oppressed by the knowledge that God hates him because of his sin. Until Luther discovered Romans chapter 8, and now the righteousness of God is revealed against ungodliness. Now, prior to really understanding that passage, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, the righteousness of God is now revealed? But then he began to teach theology. And for the first time, he began to really read the New Testament as he was tasked the job to teach upcoming um, priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And what he discovered is that the righteousness of God revealed against ungodliness is Christ Jesus. And that God, at the right time, sends his son into the world to deal with the unrighteousness of men through his suffering upon the cross. And what Luther realized is this is not just a statement of judgment. It is a statement of deliverance. It is not merely a statement of God's anger against sin. It is a statement of God's mercy and compassion. That even though God is angry with our sins, he is pleased to forgive us. And when we break his law, he is pleased to remind us of it. As Moses wrote, the Lord is unwilling to destroy us. What if you were God? If that's not too blasphemous a question. And Israel was your people. How long ago would you have been done with them? (laughs) Written them off. You see, God saw Israel through the eyes of of his son. And in fact, the God of the Old Testament is not just God the Father, but it is the son himself. It is a covenantal, if I can use this language, marital affection. In fact, go to the book of Jude. Have you ever turned to the book of Jude? I imagine your Bible, if you opened it, would never fall to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is just a little one-chapter book stuck between 3 John and the book of Revelation. And in the book of Jude, we read this incredible Christological insight. The book of Jude, verse 5 through 7, or chapter 1. There's only one chapter. The book of Jude, beginning in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. Who is the person of the Godhead who led Israel out of Egypt? It was Jesus. It was the second person of the Godhead. He was the one with them. In fact, whenever God meets with his people in the scriptures, it is always Jesus. Because he is the husband of the bride who is pursuing his wayward love. Jesus was the one meeting with Moses on the mountain. Jesus was the one who passed by Moses and was so holy that Moses could not look upon him. Now, of course, Jesus 
would not be his name until he took upon himself flesh and blood. But what Jude is doing is he is saying to the New Testament saints, New Testament saints, I want you to go back to the book of Genesis and I want you to reread all of the Old Testament and I want you to put Jesus' name in those instances where the people of God are delivered from their sins. Jesus was within was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus was the commander of the army of the Lord who met Joshua on the day of battle or the night before battle. It's Jesus. Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments. So don't let these people now say, well, Jesus in the New Testament is certainly not God, like God in the Old Testament. Those are two different gods. And so Jesus has a different law here in the New Testament. Love one another. No, don't listen to those people. They've never read the book of Jude. They probably think Jude is just a character in a Beatles song. They don't know who Jude is. Read it. It's there. And so Jesus comes to Moses and he says, I'm not willing to destroy you. Why? Because he just doesn't have the time to discipline parents. Have you ever been in that position? I don't have the time to spank your bottom. I don't have time for that. I got other things to do. That would be unfaithful. And there were times where Jesus did punish the Israelites for their sins. But here he is intent to make sure that the covenant and the provision of that covenant endures. And this is what will happen. Not only will be the law of God, not only is the law of God durable as the foundation for the covenant, but Jesus has a plan whereby the law of God will no longer be need to be written here, although it is essential that we get it from here, it will be written here in our hearts. And that leads you to a second point, new hearts. And it is here where Moses moves from history to exhortation, from indicative to imperative. And the clear exhortation to Israel is grounded upon the character and the mission and the work of the Lord. And Moses gives Israel a glimpse of what the Lord is trying to do. He's trying to win your affections. He wants you to love him. And the way in which he will garner your affection is by showing you mercy time and time and time again. The way that you are brought back to the Lord and made a keeper of the law is not simply by memorizing the law. It is by loving the one who has given you the law, which is why Christ says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do not love God, you are not a keeper of the law. And you cannot be a lover of God unless he doesn't just write with his hand upon stone, but he takes his finger by the Holy Spirit and he etches upon your heart affection for him. He changes it. He, boom, boom, gives you life. Just shocks you into a state of new life. We see it in the book of Ezekiel. Giving flesh to dry bones. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. When you go home tonight, read Ezekiel 36 verses 22 through 32. And there the Lord reminds us of his desire to give us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. God is seeking to soften the hearts of Israel. 
How does God soften the hearts of Israel? You know how he does it? History. History. But not just the relaying of facts. A history that reminds Israel of his compassion and his faithfulness. It's wedding book history, not textbook history. It's a history of his love and affection and his power and his might and his glory and his strength. Look at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet, so God has all of this stuff. He has all of these things to govern beyond our galaxy. Every wormhole and every worm, all of it is his. And yet, Moses says, he looks at you differently than the rest of creation. And he says, I love them uniquely. You are significant. And remember, Moses is saying, it's not because there's anything beautiful about you. Though you are made in the image of God, you are a rebel, a sinner from conception. You above all peoples, end of verse 15. I'm sorry, beginning of verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Why does God renew the covenant? Why do you, when your spouse sins against you, say, I forgive you? Because of the covenant. Because you said, I will always forgive you no matter what you've done. No matter what you have done, I will forgive. But not even men can do that, can they? But God can. And God does. Now, it costs God something, doesn't it, to do that? The first time it cost God something, it cost him a dear creature. He killed an animal. God himself brought death into his perfect creation. And he killed that animal in order to clothe his sinful, image-bearing creatures. And from that point on, death reigned. And God was pursuing man to the end that death may no longer reign. And one day, death will no longer reign. There will be no more death at all. And we will live forever in a state of eternal sinless bliss. And there, I cannot imagine. And the only way that will happen is that every time we sin, God restores here the beauty and the integrity and the faithfulness of the covenant that he has made with us. Every time you violate God's law, God by his Holy Spirit, you know the, the little thing you go, you go, you go, you know what, I, what is it called? It's a sketch. He starts again. He forgives. What does Psalm 103 say? He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. How does he do that? Well, because he can. And he does through the work of Christ, the mediator. And the way that he does that is he puts within us a resounding knowledge of his mercy and covenantal favor. And the way in which he does that best 
is through the cross of Christ Jesus. The sanctifying usefulness of Christ upon the cross, it is the chief place where God says, do you doubt my love? This is the length of my covenantal affection. And what writes the law on our hearts is when we behold Christ upon the cross and we see that he died for us. And the evidence of that new heart is found in verse 12 and 13. Here it is. What does God require? To fear him, to love him, to walk in his ways, to serve, and to keep the commandments. That we love the Lord, that we fear and revere him, that we walk, that is, we obey and keep his commands, that we serve the Lord, that we use the gifts that he has given us to serve him and to keep our hearts for him. God is calling Israel to evidence in their lives the change that he is working in their hearts. He is calling Israel to do that which it could not apart from his saving grace. This law drives Israel to look to the one who can and is willing to do the very thing that Israel cannot do. Augustine said, command what thou wilt and grant what you command. He understands that apart from the saving grace of God, none are righteous, no, not one. And so what do we find here? We find illustrated the power of God to care for those who need it and the means by which it is accomplished. And so we find in verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and you shall hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Where are we reminded of God's great and terrifying acts? And worship together as the saints as we behold his covenantal faithfulness to us. I love this phrase, he is your praise. Worship is the exaltation of the name of God. He fills our songs. We sing songs of reverence and fear and love because he is the one who keeps his covenant. And what is the sign of that? Look at verse 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 people, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. 1.6 million was about the number. It's pretty big. I mean, it's a pretty substantial number of people. And even though God brought judgment against the first generation, Moses is preaching to the nation of Israel that was about to enter into the very land that God would give them. Our great confidence is God's covenantal favor and faithfulness. And so when you are struggling in your heart to keep his commands, I would encourage you to do this, to remember the great and terrifying acts of God. And the place that you see that best is not just the New Old Testament, these mighty works in the Old Testament, but the chief place is when Christ suffered under the wrath of God for the sake of your sins. Great for you, terrifying for him. It is the greatest moment of joy and terror the world has ever known. It was the worst and greatest day 
in the history of the world. And all for the sake of God's beloved people. Let's pray.